Tonight we're going to wrap up this series that we have been in on the book of Daniel called God Above All. And over the past five weeks we've been in the narrative portion of the book of Daniel, looking at some of the stories that are quite well known, probably that many of us have known since we were children. Uh, Tonight we move from the narrative portion into the uh, vision portion or the apocalyptic portion of the book of Daniel in chapter 7. And this will bring our series to a close. Next week, Sam is going to begin a four-week series on the book of James and uh, entitled The Law of Liberty, How Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. Um, As many of you know, in about two days, my wife and I and our four kids are leaving for a month of extended rest, much-needed rest, and uh, we would greatly appreciate your prayers for us for that time that we have away, and uh, we will be praying for you as well uh, as we're gone. So next week we'll jump into the book of James with Sam, which will be great, and uh, I think this next month will be a wonderful month for Church of the Cross, uh, and I hope for our family as well, as we're apart. Um, but tonight, back to tonight, we're in, uh, into Daniel 7, and what I'm hoping to do is give, we're going to skate on top. We can't do a whole lot in terms of dealing with a passage of Scripture that has probably been written on about as many as any other passage in the Old Testament for sure. Uh, the commentaries all have about three times as much on this section than, than they do on the, re- the other sections in Daniel. It's, a, it's a, uh, an important text. My hope is that we can kind of get some big picture perspective and then bring this home to our lives today. So in Daniel 7, quickly, we read a portion of that. Aaron read a portion of that for us this evening. But the vision here that Daniel has, it says in the first, reign of, the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar, is a vision of beasts that are arising out of the sea. First, there's a a beast that looks like a lion, and then on and on and on, and there are four beasts eventually that come out of the sea. Um, And these beasts, through this little horn that's one of ten horns that then defeats three other horns, and so on, now you can see why we'll stay on top, um, actually starts to make war on the saints of the Most High. Starts to persecute and, and to make war on the people of God. But then in the passage that we picked up, uh, beginning in verse 9, after these beasts are raised up, Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And we get this courtroom scene of the heavenly heavenly kingdom where the Ancient of Days sits on his judgment throne and begins to make judgment over the scene of the world and the chaos in the world. And it's in the midst of that scene that one like a son of man is brought up from earth to this heavenly throne room where the Ancient of Days declares him to be in the right, judges on his behalf in favor of this one like a son of man. And in that judgment then the people of God who had been persecuted, who had been suffering, are vindicated. Their enemies are destroyed And as those people are vindicated, as God's people are vindicated, then God himself is actually vindicated as well. And he's lifted up in glory. So verse 14, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So it's a vision of suffering, of beasts, of one like a son of man being brought before the ancient of days, of judgment being given, of vindication, and of God ultimately being vindicated in the midst of that and triumphing over the world. Now what I want to do, we didn't read from Daniel 6. Most of you know Daniel 6. It's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And the story of Daniel 6 is a lot like many of the stories that we've already looked at in the book of Daniel. Uh, And the amazing thing is that there are tremendous parallels between Daniel 6, 
the end of the narrative portion, and Daniel 7, this visionary portion that begins in chapter 7. So in both of these chapters, one, a human figure is surrounded by wild beasts, right? Daniel was praying before the Lord, and and King Darius had issued an edict because of the envy of the other leaders in, in the kingdom who were jealous of Daniel's success, that if anybody prayed to another god other than him for 30 days, they'd be thrown into the den of lions, so Daniel ends up praying before the Lord in front of an open window. His, uh, his um, colleagues turn him in and then he's thrown against King Darius' wishes into the den of lions. So like Daniel 7, Daniel 6 has a human figure surrounded by beasts. The first beast in Daniel 7 I mentioned is actually already identified for us as a lion, which makes the connection between Daniel 6 and the lion's den and Daniel 7 quite explicit. The king in Daniel 6, Darius, and the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 both come into play and act with authority. One has authority that's effective, the other isn't so effective. The human figure in each case, in each chapter, is rescued, ultimately, out of the reach of the beasts, um, and his enemies are then destroyed. And in the process of that rescue, then this true God is vindicated. So at the end of chapter 6, King Darius says that this God is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. And I already read for you what happens in chapter 7 about the Ancient of Days being lifted up. So the question I want to ask is, what are we to make of this parallel between Daniel 6 and Daniel 7, between this narrative portion of this book and now the apocalyptic portion, the visionary portion of this book? Well, it seems to be the case that the book of Daniel is suggesting that what has happened to Daniel in chapter 6 with the lion's den, and then to Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapters 1 through 5, is indicative of what will happen to the people of God as a whole, or at least to the righteous remnant of those people. The vision of Daniel 7 says that God will act one day to, to, to defeat the beastly, subhuman kingdoms of this world, those kingdoms that objectify and dehumanize their subjects. And he will do so in order to vindicate his people and to vindicate his own name and to establish his kingdom and his rule through his people. So that what we saw about Daniel and his friends going into turmoil, being faithful, being in places of suffering and then being delivered miraculously from the fiery furnace uh, or from the lion's den, we will then see one day with the people of God being delivered and vindicated. So from the middle 6th century BC for Israel... They had lived from that time up to the first century under foreign occupation or rule, at least for the most part. And so the book of Daniel begins to take on more and more significance for the people of God, such that by the time of the first century, this was one of the key texts and passages that the people of God would turn to to articulate their hope that one day God would come and make things right. One day God would come and overthrow the beastly foreign rule and make his benevolent rule exist in the world. So there was a lot of expectation about this. Now, Matthew 24. Jesus, as we had read for us tonight from Sam, speaks of the coming of the Son of Man. And then he says, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And when he makes this connection, he's making a connection between this hope that's presented to us in Daniel 7 and his own life and ministry and vocation as one who announces what at the beginning of his ministry? 
Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom. Now, there are three things in Daniel 7 that I want to point out to us as we kind of keep in mind the reality of what Jesus does. And that's where our ultimate focus will be. The first thing is representation in Daniel 7. There's one like a son of man who comes up before the ancient of days. And this one like a son of man, if we we continue on in Daniel 7, we're told in verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Or in verse 21, it says, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Or then in verse 27, at the end of Daniel 7, the kingdom shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High and their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. The simple point being that this one like a son of man has a representative function in the literary text of Daniel 7. Whatever else lots of commentators and scholars like to think of this, what does this mean? The fact of the matter is is that one like a son of man in Daniel 7.13 begins uh, to be unpacked in the rest of Daniel 7 as representing the saints of the Most High, the people of the Most High. So there's a representative function going on in Daniel 7. That's the first thing. The second theme in Daniel 7 that I want to point out is vindication. Vindication. The saints are suffering underneath this one horn that crushes everything in its feet. And then in the midst of that suffering, the Ancient of Days comes into the picture and lifts them up and judges in their behalf for their favor and vindicates them from that position of lowliness and suffering. And then the third and final theme of Daniel 7, so representation, vindication, is kingdom. Kingdom. In other words, the saints of the Most High are not simply rescued just to be rescued, but they're brought out of this place of suffering in order to be given authority and to rule over the world. So as we saw at the end of chapter 7, this kingdom shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. The people of God lifted up to a place of rule and authority over the world. So representation, vindication, and kingdom. Jesus, Matthew 24, takes the language of Daniel 7, which many of his contemporaries, certainly not all, but scholars would say certainly at least some, would have interpreted in a messianic way this one like a son of man. And speaks this language that when you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And begins to associate himself with the vision that's being displayed in Daniel 7. Of a time that would come when the suffering and the oppression of the people of God would be undone. And they would be delivered. And the kingdom of God would go forth in power. All four of the gospel writers pick up these themes. And say loud and clear to us as the people of God today that what the Old Testament people of God looked forward to and what was expressed in Daniel chapter 7 is ultimately fulfilled paradoxically, beautifully in the ministry, in the life, in the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus who represents as the Messiah the people of God in himself, this kind of corporate identity you know, one way of thinking about Jesus in an analogous situation is like the U.S. House of, House's representatives. Somebody who's representing a people, their interests, their voices, in a sense their livelihood, their futures. 
Jesus has that representation in his Messiahship. There's vindication in Jesus. There's real suffering in that Jesus goes to descend to the lowest place, to the cross. And then three days later, God raises him from the dead and there is this true vindication of Jesus. And then thirdly, there is kingdom in the ministry of Jesus. A kingdom that Jesus said he had come to establish, that had come among us in his presence. Where Jesus and the Gospels take us beyond Daniel 7 is where I want to kind of bring this to a focus and apply it to our lives. Daniel 7 makes the point representation, vindication, and kingdom. It also makes the point that there will be suffering for the people of God. But it doesn't show us the how, the how of that kingdom being established in the midst of a world of suffering, other than the the divine judgment of the ancient of days. But what the Gospels teach us about Jesus as the one like a son of man who had come into the world is that the worldwide rule and authority of the kingdom of God would actually be established by the humiliation, the suffering, and the death of the one like a son of man. That it was through his humiliation, it was through his suffering, that the kingdom would be inaugurated and established. It's not that the kingdom is over here on the one hand and the cross is over here on the other, but it's actually that the cross is the moment at which the the devil, the powers of evil, and all the kingdoms that have colluded with him are expelled from the world, are triumphed over and ruled over. So the very mechanism and the means by which this kingdom vision of Daniel 7 is implemented and established in the world, the very world that we live in, is through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what the Gospels teach us as they bring their focus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, straight from the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, to the final week of Jesus, to the triumphal entry, to the Last Supper, to Good Friday. And finally, to his resurrection. Daniel 7 is clear that this authority, this kingdom that God will establish for his people will be exercised through the people of God. There's a representative function. It's not just one, but it's all taking part in this rule and this reign of the kingdom of life and of love. And what the Gospels teach us is that as Jesus inaugurates this kingdom and establishes this kingdom in the cross and through his suffering and through his life of service, the Son of Man has come not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That this kingdom that God is establishing in the world will go on being expanded and established through the people of God taking up upon ourselves the way of our king which is this way of self-sacrificial love and the cross and this is what the gospels fill out for us from the picture that we get in Daniel 7 of this hope that one day God would establish his kingdom is they fill out the how that that kingdom is established through the death and the suffering of Jesus that we might then take upon ourselves as those 
who've been loved by Jesus, as those who've been forgiven by Jesus, as those who have been wooed and compelled by the kindness and the mercy of God who establishes his kingdom not by obliteration, but by obliterating himself for our sakes. That those of us who identify with him as our corporate head would then begin to live out our lives in this way of taking up the cross and of laying down our lives for the sake of others, modeling this Jesus who has suffered for us. And as we do then, the vision of the kingdom, the expansion of this kingdom, continues and continues out over the beastly powers and authorities of our day. Now, all three of our readings came from apocalyptic sections of scripture, Daniel 7, Matthew 24, and Last but not least, Revelation chapter 1, where John, stuck in exile on the island of Patmos, if anybody ever had to question, was Jesus reigning as king, it had to be probably John, sitting out on this island, caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day, sees a vision of Jesus in his exalted state describes what he sees in language that's incredibly similar to Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 about the ancient of days where Jesus is in a position of authority and says I hold the keys of death and Hades I am the beginning and the end the first and the last the alpha and the omega which is to say as the people of God like John and as the people of God like the people to whom John is writing live out this kingdom vocation of taking up our cross and of going to that place of suffering, of love, of sacrifice, to see the kingdom expanded. We might often, as happens in our world today, we read about the, I know there was a video, it was maybe dubious, at least I read today as I checked my sources about the Syrian bishops that were abducted near the Turkey border by Islamic extremists. And and a video was circulating about one of them being kind of gruesomely beheaded last week, and I don't know if that's true or not, but... That's a picture of this kind of bearing witness, of this faithful witness. In a world of authority and power and violence that we'll take advantage of, we struggle to see the rule and the reign of Jesus at the Father's right hand. Yet Revelation 1, this book of Revelation entirely, is pointing us as the people of God to see, to see in the midst of this world that the beastly kingdoms that Daniel 7 says will be undone one day were in fact undone at the cross and the resurrection was the proof of that. And therefore, that as the people of God who are taking these lower places in our lives with our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends, our spouses, our children, and finding it to be challenging and difficult and not seeing clearly, that we need to see, as John encourages us to see, Jesus high and exalted and lifted up. That this is the encouragement to us as the people of God through whom the kingdom of God is being established by faithful witness, by the word of our testimony, by the testimony of our lives. To see with new eyes, fresh eyes, the reality of Jesus exalted, reigning, and ruling through his own suffering, death, and resurrection. As we live out this way, this way that we've heard about a lot of the last five weeks in the book of Daniel, this how the kingdom is established. God's kingdom will grow from that one single stone cut out, if you remember in chapter 2, by no human hand that then grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. It will grow through us and our faithful witness 
as the people of God. Empowered and strengthened and sustained by this vision of Jesus, the crucified and risen one, who in Revelation 5 is not only the lion, the true lion, not the false lion of the lion's den or the false lion of Daniel 7.4, but the lion who is also the lamb who was slain, bearing in his exaltation the marks of his suffering for you and for me. This is the Jesus we serve. This is the Jesus we follow. This is the Jesus we bear witness to. This is the Jesus we bear our cross for because he bore it for us and we know how deeply we are loved. And as we do this, brothers and sisters, for this next month in different places, God's kingdom will go forth through our witness and our testimony.